Hello and welcome to episode 143 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Today's story is from Liverpool in the northwest of the UK and involves drugs, money and professional criminals from Liverpool and Glasgow. But much more than that, it's a tale of devastated lives. I'm delighted that this week's show is sponsored by Heist, the underwear brand on a mission to take away the frustration that every woman has with their underwear. And I can happily endorse Heist as my wife raves about their products, as will you, when you see how they've already revolutionised tights and shapewear with more to come in 2020. And why their products are so good is no surprise, as they have an in-house team of material scientists and garment innovators, known as Lab 12, creating their products. Are you a swimming fan? Well, Lab 12 is led by Fiona Fairhurst, the inventor of the revolutionary multi-gold winning fast skin swimsuit. And heists have applied technology never used before to create shapewear that moves with the body rather than against it. Go and explore Heist for yourself now, with a special 15% discount on products for listeners to this podcast. Just head to heist-studios.com and use the promotion code HEIST15, that's all capitals, at checkout. That is heist-studios.com and use the special code HEIST15, all capitals, at checkout. A huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this most exclusive club. That is Carrie Elaine, Julie Parmenter, Mrs. Monster, bracket, Claire, close bracket, Jeanette Klobbasser, David Mullen and Celeste White. I'm so grateful to you for your support and full-length bonus episode 31 will be published this week as well as other exclusive content. Enjoy and thank you so much for your support. Let's quickly set some context to today's story by taking a quick look at the music we were listening to when the events took place, which was the 30th of October 1999. Death metal predominated, with Westlife topping the charts with Flying Without Wings. R. Kelly was at three with I Wish I Could Turn Back the Hands of Time. Hmm. In the US singles chart, Santana, featuring Rob Thomas, remained in the number one slot for 10 consecutive weeks with Smooth. In the news this month, as the Rugby World Cup kicked off in Cardiff, the Labrick Grove rail crash in West London killed 31 people. An Indian Ocean tropical supercyclone hit Odisha, India, with wind speeds of up to 300 miles per hour. At least 9,885 people lost their lives. There was horror in Armenia when gunmen opened fire, killing eight people, including the Prime Minister. An Egypt Air Flight 990, travelling from New York City to Cairo, crashed off the coast of Massachusetts, killing all 217 people on board. Today's story takes us to Crosby, near Liverpool, in the northwest of England. If you've been there, you'll notice a really interesting stretch of coastline with a pretty marine lake and several miles of sandy shores with amazing wildlife, and home to Anthony Gormley's art installation, Another Place, which is a hundred life-sized iron men looking out to sea. People from here include genius Kenny Everett, Cherie Blair, and J. Bruce Ismay, who was the chairman of the White Star Line at the time of Titanic's sinking. 
what a selection. The marina is a beautiful secluded spot popular with locals and particularly with dog walkers. You just know where this is going, don't you? It was 8am on October the 31st that the body was discovered by, yep, you got it, a couple walking their dogs. It was a crisp October morning when they saw something in bushes just off the main path and they'd found the lifeless body of 33-year-old Warren Selkirk who'd been shot in the head and face four times and a fifth bullet had been fired into his chest. Detectives quickly discovered that after receiving a phone call, Warren had driven to the marina the previous afternoon with his two sons, aged 10 and 14. He told them he wouldn't be more than a few minutes, but he never returned to the car. Eventually, fearing that something was dreadfully wrong, the two boys managed to tearfully drive themselves back home. Inquiries showed that Warren from Bootle was a devoted family man, who following his divorce lived with his partner and his children, and he helped to train local children at a gym nearby. He was well known and popular in the local community, but he was also well known to police due to his criminal record. He had been heavily involved in the hard drugs trade and was a convicted drug dealer who had spent time in prison for dealing in heroin. Detectives quickly suspected that drugs were key to his death and they believed that he'd been working for a Merseyside gang currently under investigation, which was supplying heroin and ecstasy to Glasgow and West Yorkshire. This was a serious outfit, filled with real criminals you wouldn't want to mess with and who wouldn't hesitate to use excessive violence. Had Warren somehow crossed somebody in this group? Detectives also discovered that Warren had a serious gambling problem, spending thousands of pounds a night in the local bookies. It is thought that at the time of his death, Warren had run up a debt of around 40k, and the sort of people he owed money to for these debts certainly had the potential to be responsible for Warren's death. We talk a lot about drug dealers and others where violence is a daily part of their lives. I wonder if before his death, if Warren was more nervous than usual, unable to relax, and always listening for that knock on the door, or that noise in the middle of the night. Forensic experts quickly concluded that Warren was shot at point-blank range, and a couple of points suggested it was no amateur job, but a professional hit. Firstly, the gun used was a .25 calibre gun, an unobtrusive weapon, which would have fit inside the palm of a hand without being noticed. And in Warren's right hand, he was found clutching a plastic shopping bag full of dog excrements. This is something that's placed there after death sometimes, and a common sign of the murderer having utter contempt for his victim. There was an outpouring of grief locally, as detectives asked for information about Warren's murder, due to the nature of the crime, his children, and the fear that this could be the start of another bloody battle between drugs gangs played out across Merseyside. Detectives knew they were under pressure to make arrests, and soon. As detectives sought information from informants and the local community, all their inquiries pointed to one man, Scottish gangster and father of two, Ian McAteer. He was a man strongly suspected of playing a key role in running the drugs trade in Merseyside and Glasgow and with a reputation for the most ferocious violence, 
certainly not a man you would want as an enemy. Born into poverty in the Glasgow suburb of Easter House in 1961, he may have come across your radar relatively recently as he was a suspect in the murder of Jill Dando. By the age of 11, McAteer was stealing purses and handbags to feed himself and his four siblings, all of whom had very difficult childhoods and spent some time in foster care. It was a really tough upbringing, but very soon McAteer was showing signs of leadership on the streets. He knew how to look after himself. By 1979, when he was just 18, McAteer had established links with Glasgow's main drugs barons, operating as a distributor in Scotland and working closely with the Liverpool Mafia. Journalist Graham Johnson reported that aside from drug dealing, McAteer's work encompassed contract killings, gun running, debt collection and protection. He had a successful used car business, which was allegedly used to wash money obtained from his growing portfolio of illegal ventures. McAteer was described in the Liverpool Echo paper as one of Scotland's most feared gangsters, and he had a number of nicknames such as Mad Jock and Little Hands. At the time of Warren's death, McAteer wasn't tied to one location, and he split his time between his properties in Scotland and England. One anonymous detective was quoted in the Liverpool Echo paper, saying, He had watched McAteer progress from a troublesome youth on the streets of Glasgow to a highly dangerous professional criminal. The detective continued, He is a really nasty piece of work. He is a vicious, evil man who comes from a family of car thieves and drug users. One thing for sure is that by 1999, McAteer was prominent as a major player in the drugs trade, and he had a reputation for violence as a tool for persuasion and coercion. It transpired that McAteer had first met Warren when they were both serving time in prison. And until his death, Warren Selkirk had been employed by McAteer's drug cartel on North Merseyside, and he acted as a liaison between the gang's leaders and their Scottish customers. His job was to hand over the money paid for the drugs to his employers on North Merseyside. Although the two men had been associates in a drug-running operation worth millions of pounds, McAteer was very much the main man in the relationship. Make no mistake, it was no even partnership. Their relationship had become increasingly frayed as McAteer cut Warren out of various drug deals and became ever more worried about Warren's inability to deliver as his gambling debt started to increase. In McAteer's business, there was no room for those who weren't to be trusted and those who couldn't deliver every time. The stakes were just too high. The information coming through to detectives was that the catalyst for Warren's murder was a loan of £6,000 made by McAteer to Warren to clear some of his debts, which Warren still hadn't paid back. By tracing McAteer's phone calls, detectives believe that during the late afternoon of Saturday, October 30th, 1999, Warren Selkirk received a telephone call from McAteer asking to meet him at Crosby Marina on North Merseyside that evening. And it was there that someone hired by McAteer, not him himself, detectives didn't believe that he pulled the trigger, murdered Warren and dumped his body. But this evidence wouldn't hold up in a court of law and the police needed more. This corroborating information came from a fellow Glaswegian drug runner, George Smith. 
He told detectives he had seen McAteer with a handgun in a Liverpool hotel the night before the killing. And he claimed that McAteer had later admitted the shooting to him. This was enough for detectives, and knowing how dangerous he could be, especially when cornered, armed police were used to arrest McAteer. McAteer claimed he was not a drug dealer and he didn't shoot Warren. He said he had made the trip to Merseyside to visit one of his many girlfriends and he had nothing to do with Warren Selkirk. As for murdering him for just £6,000, Warren said this was utterly ridiculous. This was just a small sum he had given Warren to help him and his family and certainly wasn't a reason to kill. Once he was in custody, McAteer threatened to shoot a number of police officers as well as anyone who stood as a witness against him. But some did talk and at least two members of his drugs gang were given new identities under the Witness Protection Programme in return for agreeing to testify against their former colleague. Other factors blurred the investigation. Local man and associate of McAteer, David Baker, approached a small-time Liverpool crook and asked him to tell police he was with McAteer on the night of the murder. But the villain understandably became scared when he realised he was getting way out of his depth and becoming embroiled in a gangland murder, and raised the alarm, saying how Baker had asked him to tell them a fabricated story about how he met McAteer on the night of October the 30th, the night Warren was murdered, to discuss buying a car from him. Baker was later found guilty of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. The Liverpool man who gave evidence against him in court was placed in a witness protection scheme. In court, the judge told Baker, This offence is so serious that only a substantial sentence can be justified. It is serious because you took part in a deliberate attempt to pervert the course of justice. And after the murder, there were reports that an Ulster-based terrorist organisation had claimed responsibility for Warren's death. It was said he had been killed by loyalists because he had been selling guns and drugs to a Republican splinter group. A photograph was sent to an Irish newspaper which appeared to show a group of loyalist terrorists wearing balaclavas. At one point a telephone call was made by a group said to be called the Loyalist Freedom Fighters claiming that the group had sent an active service unit to Merseyside to murder Warren. However, police later labelled the claims as a red herring and suggested that McAteer had been behind these bizarre claims to distance himself from the murder. Police suspected that it was McAteer who set up the photograph, which appeared to show a group of Ulster terrorists. As you would expect, security was incredibly tight at McAteer's trial. Eventually, a jury at Liverpool Crown Court took more than seven hours to find Ian McAteer from Glasgow guilty of the murder of Warren Selkirk, for which he was sentenced to life imprisonment. McAteer was also convicted of plotting to supply heroin and ecstasy and of attempting to pervert the course of justice. He was also convicted of plotting to deliver drugs from Liverpool onto the streets of Glasgow, but sentence was postponed for an inquiry into his assets under the Drug Trafficking Act. Friends and family of Warren, including his ex-wife and partner at the time of his death, were in tears when the verdicts were passed. McAteer, who showed no emotion at all, as the verdicts were passed, smiled as he left the dock and said, Thank you. See you in the appeal court. Speaking outside court after the verdict, Warren Selkirk's dad, Samuel, 
formerly of Glasgow himself, said, We're over the moon, really over the moon. We have got the verdict we wanted. McAteer is much better inside than outside. Detective Superintendent Julianne Wallace-Jones, who led the inquiry, said, Ian McAteer is an extremely dangerous man. If he had not been convicted, I have no doubt that he would have become a hitman. Scottish detectives also expressed their delight at the verdict, revealing that the killer had escaped a previous murder charge three years earlier. Then, a not-proven verdict was delivered after 26-year-old Jack Bennett of Glasgow was stabbed 57 times. McAteer had got to know John Bennett after McAteer was sent to prison in 1993 for drugs offences. The two clashed inside for reasons that are unclear, with some claiming this was due to a drugs dispute or just a personality dispute, whereas John Bennett's family say it's because their son rejected McAteer's sexual advances towards him. The prosecution at the trial claimed that McAteer had earlier put out a contract while in jail, offering two ounces of tobacco and 50 temezapan tablets to any inmate who killed Bennett. To give you an idea of the horror of this crime, let me just read a very short piece from the Herald newspaper, who covered it as follows. Three men walked free yesterday after a jury found the charge against them of the daylight murder of a small-time crook not proven. Afternoon shoppers ran screaming as 26-year-old John Bennett was killed in front of them. The High Court in Glasgow is told that three men cornered Bennett against a wall near shops in Royston Road, Glasgow, on Saturday, February 28th, 1998. The advocate said that the witnesses claimed that one of the three accused, 36-year-old Ian McAteer, sat on a wall and repeatedly hit Mr Bennett on the head. Bennett's girlfriend claimed she saw McAteer and two of his colleagues kill him. She said, they killed him, I saw them. Why would I tell lies about three men? I don't even know. But despite this evidence, on the 10th of August, the jury at Glasgow's High Court returned a not proven verdict and Ian McAteer had walked away a free man. After McAteer's conviction for murdering Warren, details of a drug trial kept secret until the conclusion of the murder hearing was revealed, in which seven former associates of McAteer were found guilty of importing and distributing drugs. Five men from Merseyside and two from Bradford were jailed for between 11 and 21 years, and in 2001, McAteer was jailed for 16 years for his role in this Liverpool-based drugs conspiracy. But there have been doubts expressed on the murder verdict by a number of people due to the somewhat flimsy evidence and the fact that it was accepted all round that McAteer didn't actually pull the trigger, and detectives couldn't prove who did. Former Glasgow gangster Paul Ferris has known McAteer since childhood, and he was convinced of McAteer's innocence. In his 2005 book, Vendetta, Ferris protested that McAteer must be innocent in relation to the murder of Warren, suggesting that the police pinned the murder to McAteer in order to manage the grief following the killing amongst the city of Liverpool. He argued that McAteer's jealous henchman, George Bell Smith, whose ex-girlfriend was in a relationship with McAteer, gave false testimony about his boss, indicating guilt such as the brandishing of a gun in return for having a child sex abuse charge dropped against him. And McAteer's later appeal asserted that a key witness had charges against them dismissed after agreeing to give evidence. 
Ferris, who knew Makatea well, found it implausible that Makatea, whom he described as being so cautious as to be almost paranoid, would implicate himself in such a way, and concluded that Warren Selkirk was killed by Irish criminals due to unpaid gambling debts. In a 2005 interview he said, It's common knowledge that Makadir did not do it. Even the dogs in the street know it. He is being kept inside because of politics and nothing else. And tying up one final loose end, what happened to David Baker, the man who tried to raise an alibi for Makatea? He became heavily involved in the drugs trade after being released from prison on the conspiracy charge. He was linked to a group of Merseysiders who used a kitchen business in Knowlesley as a front to flood the region with drugs. Baker, who of course denied all the charges, was jailed for 24 years in 2006. But he died in his cell just 10 years later, aged 54 after suffering an aneurysm. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Was Ian McAteer responsible for the death of Warren Selkirk? We have to assume the court verdict was correct after they listened to all the evidence. And incidentally, I wouldn't have wanted to be a local person on that jury, would you? I think it's pretty hard to have any sympathy when criminals who deal in misery by their involvement in the drugs trade are violent towards each other. But it's still difficult not to have some sympathy for the families involved, and in this case especially Warren's two children, who had now been in their 20s. I wonder how the events that we have talked about today have impacted their lives and continue to do so. And even the dog walkers who found the body, I know, it's always dog walkers, isn't it? But the trauma they will face for the rest of their lives cannot be underestimated. And what of Ian McAteer? Well, you may disagree, but in cases like this, I can't help wondering what could have happened if he'd applied himself to legal pursuits. Could he have made a big success? Or is that just nonsense, do you think? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story, cheesecake recipes, or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please pop over to the Facebook group where 3,000 or so of us will make you very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com for over 30 full-length bonus episodes, all for the price of a dodgy lager. So that is all from me for today. Please don't forget to go to heist-studios.com and use the code HEIST15, or capitals, at the checkout to claim your 15% promotion bonus. And me? Well, after one win this season, I'm off to begin celebrating the mighty Leeds United being promoted as champions come May. After all, what could possibly go wrong? On that bombshell, I will speak with you again next week. Until then, take it easy, and of course, stay classy.